Leadership's incredibly lonely. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. I always had the view that I wanted to be a leader, not a doer. The objective of having the right culture is so you can achieve the strategic goals of the organisation. Hello, and welcome to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, brought to you by SG Partners. Each episode allows you to hear from real leaders of real businesses with the aim of assisting you to become even more effective at what you do. Whether you're already a leader, CEO, business owner, manager, or an entrepreneur. This exploration of leadership effectiveness covers a range of challenges you may already be experiencing yourself. Now, let's hear from our host, international speaker master, NLP practitioner, and owner of SG Partners, Michael Lane. Hello, and welcome to Traits of Effective Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Michael Lang, owner of SG Partners. Today, we have another great guest, and we'll be exploring again concepts around leadership. And what really excites me today about talking to our guest is he's been in a number of roles that has enabled him to put together a lot of experience, a lot of learnings. So we're going to get a lot of insights from his perspective of what it is to be a great leader and what he's learnt along the way. So our guest today is Paul Avey. Now, Paul Avey started his career in New Zealand in the New Zealand Air Force. So we're going to explore what he learnt in, in that aspect and what he's taken forward from a leadership perspective. And then he went into the manufacturing side to companies like Orica and Incitec Pivot and then start to progress his leadership and finally into CEOs and managing director roles. So we're going to explore that a bit further. His journey has been primarily in companies that we know their brands quite well, definitely in the industrial space, and it's been in smaller companies and then into large corporates, multinationals, then back into another smaller company to where he is now at Concept Services. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, Paul, let's go through your CV in a way. So, an engineer in the Royal Air Force, what were your learnings there? Royal New Zealand Air Force, uh, not quite the Royal Air Force, but the Royal New Zealand Air Force. So, one of the key things, Michael, is um, the New Zealand Air Force put me through university in Canterbury. And one of the, uh, obviously, I did an engineering degree, mechanical engineering degree at uh, Canterbury Uni. And um, in our university holidays, we used to do practical work and uh, we were posted to different squadrons around the New Zealand Air Force. And all of a sudden you realise that you know, life isn't about formulas, life isn't about a calculator, it's about working with people to get things done. And uh, my first posting uh, after university was to the RNZAF base in Ahakia in the uh, southern part of the North Island in New Zealand. And I was the, the maintenance flight commander for... Uh, for a, a support squadron, an engineering support squadron that basically did heavy uh, maintenance on Skyhawks and Strike Masters, which you know, back then and sort of the 35 odd years ago, New Zealand had, actually had fighters. We had squadrons that, um, of fighters and we don't anymore, but back then we did. And uh, so I was posted onto this maintenance squadron that I had 40 odd people working for me. I was 22. We had a, a fleet of 20 odd Skyhawks that we had to, uh, had to maintain. 
And uh, the only way I could do that is by working with these uh, the 40-odd people that I had working for me, who um, in most cases were twice my age. And I quickly came to learn, and one of the, the early learnings from my squadron leader at the time was that life on a squadron isn't about a formula. You can't put numbers into an equation and get the answer out the other end. You've actually got to deal with people, and you've got to build the team, you've got to understand what the objective is, and the objective was very clear, and that was to get... Um, uh, get skyhawks out on the flight line so that uh, we could give them to pilots and they could take them up in the air, they could break them, they could bring them back down and we could fix them again. So the, there was a very clear objective that, um, that bound the team together. And that was, that was probably an important leadership lesson actually uh, right at the start is make sure that the objective is clear, make sure the KPIs are clear, make sure everyone understands what you have to do and then measure the performance towards those objectives. Quite a daunting task. You're in your young 20s leading 40 people that are significantly older than you, that must have been terrifying to begin with. But obviously you had some natural talent and that's why they gave you the role. So how important was it to have a great squadron leader to assist you? Uh, Yeah, look, I I think the lessons from that period of my life was make sure you have really good mentors. Make sure you know who the good leaders are, who the bad leaders are. Make sure you learn from both, good and bad and make sure that you understand the key things that you should be doing from the experience of the people that are that have got more grey hair than what I had around the place. So, yeah, you know, certainly from a technical perspective, you know, they could they knew a lot more about the aircraft that we're maintaining than what I did. So the key was to make sure that I built those relationships with key people in the in my team so that I could understand what was going on. Because at the end of the day it was my signature on the flight line documentation that allowed these aircraft to go up in the air to fly. I suppose what might have made it easier is they were just really passionate or really enjoyed doing their bit, yeah. right? They didn't have aspirations of your role or, I mean, don't know if they called you out much, but uh, that might have made it easier. I always had the view that I wanted to be a leader, not a doer. When I was at school, I used to um, work in, in factories to earn some money. And uh, from those early days of sweeping floors and putting rubbish in bins, I realised I didn't want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> so uh, so that sort of gave me the, that driving ambition to uh, learn as much as possible at university and then learn as much about what I call my profession, which is being a leader. Right. So if we look at your progression, there's some companies that you need to leave because of the company Mm -hmm. and there's some companies you choose to leave because it's time for you to leave, Mm -hmm. right? So how do you know it's time to leave? There's that old adage that you never leave a company, you leave your boss. And I think that in just about every instance where I've had to leave, it has been because of my boss. One of the lessons that I've probably learned over the years is to make sure you choose the right boss. Number one, you've got to choose the right company that you want to go to. But equally, number two, it's really important that you choose the right right boss. You need to make sure that there's, number one, chemistry there, so you're going to be able to um, develop a relationship with that person in the future. You need to make sure that that person is ethical and professional. And equally, you need to make sure that that person knows where they're going to be taking the organisation in the future. So they've got a very clear view of what the strategic direction is of that organisation. Because if, if any of those, those critical attributes aren't there, then you're probably choosing the wrong leader. So I think, um, I think a lesson over the, you know, my 35-odd years would be to make sure that you spend time as a you know, candidate going into an organisation that you're choosing the right boss. It's really, really important to choose the right boss. And over time you've developed 
your sense of what that is, right? As in you've become even more self-aware of your values, your beliefs, and therefore be able to pick up the signals as you go through the interview stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I think that's that's really valid. It's um, the culture of an organisation is a reflection of a leader. And if your personal values are at um, a different angle of the the norms and the culture of the organisation, which is the reflection of the boss or the leader of the organisation, then you're never going to survive in that right. organisation. So I think it's it's absolutely critical that you uh, you choose the right boss when right. you go to an organisation. I've been in some of those organisations, Paul. You've lived in hope that they would change. Well, I guess I've lived in hope that you know I could make enough enough of an impact that the organisational culture would change to to being more aligned with the, the direction the company wanted to go and more aligned. I guess I've been more hopeful that I, I was able to change the leader that I was working for at that particular time so, so that they could understand their deficiencies more than more than what they were. Yeah. In a couple of cases, it's probably been a false hope. <laughs> <laughs> I think we know the companies you're talking about. <laughs> okay, so, so as you go through your career, you get to the top. I mean, you're a CEO or a managing director, right? So you are now the person that is a custodian of culture. And, yes, there's been multinationals, so there's probably always someone that's your boss, whether it's a shareholder or someone somewhere else in a foreign land, right? So tell me, what are the things that matter the most when creating a great culture? I think there's three things that are critical for culture. And I guess the objective of, you don't do culture just for culture's sake. The objective of having the right culture is so you can achieve the strategic goals of the organisation. So, so uh, there's no way that you can achieve the strategic goals in the organisation if you have got the wrong culture. So the outcome is is delivering what stakeholders, shareholders and customers want for the organisation. So for me, there's three c- critical things that you need to work on in, a, in an organisation, in, in a culture. So in, in, number one, safety, and that's not only physical safety, but uh, certainly physical safety is part of it, but it, it's more broadly psychological safety as well. And uh, you, know, my, my, you know, I've worked in organisations where safety hasn't been Safety, the broader word safety or the broader definition of the word safety hasn't been the priority. And as a result of that, you see that people, you know, if there's some bullying or harassment going on on the organisation, and you know, I've been in, in organisations where I've been bullied and I've been harassed and one particular case probably legally assaulted by my boss. And I can speak very personally about uh, about that, that there's no way that you get the commitment of an individual in the organisation if they don't feel safe, if they don't feel safe to speak up if they don't feel safe to want to be part of the organisation, if they don't feel safe to challenge strategic directions or decisions that are getting made by managers, that's a critical part of an organisation. And my view is it's the number one thing that you've got to get right in an organisation is so that people feel safe physically, mentally and emotionally in an organisation so that they can contribute. So that's probably number one. Number two, I think you need to make sure that you've got an organisation that people can develop relationships throughout the organisation. You know, organisations are just groups of people. And if those groups of people don't have relationships, you know, deep personal and professional relationships, then the organisation is nowhere near as effective. So I like to create a culture where there's ample opportunity and motivation for people to develop personal relationships with people so that people know each other, they know what makes them tick, they know their families, they know what their ambitions are, they know where they want to go. And if you do have those relationships, then information gets shared and makes the organisation a lot a lot easier and information is the lifeblood of the organisation. Mm-hmm. The final component around culture that I like to make sure that is fully understood 
is uh, you know, where we're going. And a lot of people say that's strategy, but you know, my view is that if you have a culture of understanding where we're going and people sharing that information, people talking about it, naturally talking about it, then it becomes part of the DNA of the organisation, becomes part of the culture. And so I, I like to make sure that everyone in the organisation feels you know, feels safe enough to have uh, have input into the direction the organisation's going so that there's absolute clarity on um, on what needs to be achieved and as a result of that, you you know if you have if you have safety and if you have relationships, and if we also everyone everyone understands what the objective of the organisation is, then it's a lot easier to actually achieve that organisation achieve those objectives. So for me, culture is about those three things. It's about people safety in the broader definition of the word. It's about relationships. And it's about everyone understanding what the objective of the organisation is from a cultural perspective, not just from a, a strategic development perspective. And makes sense, Paul. Mm. So why did leaders get that wrong then? Because when I listen to you talk, Paul, it's not about you. Well, uh, yeah, it's yeah. about others, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know some of the companies you've been in and I'm sure you've seen leaders, your le- leaders to you or other leaders that don't get it. Mm. I think a lot of people don't think that leadership is a profession. I think a lot of people think that you know, if you're a, a good boilermaker, then you should become the leading hand. Or if you're a good salesman, you should become a sales manager. And I like to turn that around. I think you need to think of being a leader as a profession, not as a, you know, because I'm a good engineer or a good tradesman or whatever it is, therefore I get put into a leadership position and I get more money, I get a company ute or something like that. You get all the trappings of leadership. And people have actually really got to want to be a leader and they've really got to understand what leadership is. And you know, for me, if you just go back to the basic definition of leadership, it's taking someone or something from one place to another. You're leading them from one place to another. And leadership in an organisation is about engaging the hearts and minds of people to take them from personally where they are now to something to a higher level or the organisation from where it is now to a different place, to a different executing a strategy. So it's about physically leading people with their hearts and minds, taking them from one place to another, a different level of performance. And the only way you can do that is through leadership. You can't do it through management. You can't do it through technical expertise. You can't do it through by being a good boilermaker, for example. You've actually really got to want to be a leader. You've got to want to engage the hearts and minds of people to take them from one state to another another place. It's an activity, right? It's an activity. It's right. a verb. That's right. That's right. It's something you do. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> can't do it sitting in an office. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You can't do it sitting in an office and you can't do it from behind a computer. Yeah. So from my experience with leadership is one of the most interesting elements is those that get it, I see some self-awareness in them. Hmm. So when you're, you're talking about having a safe workplace psychologically as well, you're talking about experience of you being bullied. So that's an experience that you took something from. Mm. So many other people will have that experience and not take anything from it, mm. not take any learnings, or in fact think that's the norm and they become a bully. Yep. So it yep. goes, right? Yep. So self-awareness is a critical factor from, from my perspective. Yep. Why do people struggle so much with self-awareness? I think, number one, it's painful. <laughs> it's painful to have a look at yourself. And it's painful to understand what your shortcomings are. It's painful to admit your shortcomings. And to become self-aware, you've actually got to admit that you've got some failings. And particularly us blokes, us males, we don't like to reveal that. We don't like to pull back the shell of us and expose the parts of us that aren't as good as what 
you know, the, the image that we portray is um, what we actually are. So, so I think that it's quite painful to actually do it. And as a result of it being painful, you've really got to want to become self-aware. And if there isn't that motivation to become self-aware, if you haven't been led properly in the past to understand where your weaknesses are, if you think you're 100% perfect and bulletproof, then you're never going to look internally to find out what you need to do to improve. And just listening to you there, I think one of the other aspects is to be a great leader, which is an activity, you've got to help other people to be self-aware. So you've got to be comfortable with their pain in becoming self-aware. Yep. So part of the challenge of leaders is even if you were self-aware, you've now got to be comfortable with someone else going through that pain as well, which a lot of people struggle with, right? Because who wants to create conflict? Who wants to have that tension in the room? Yeah. So they shy away from it and then they just let the problem manifest itself and, and become even even more. Yeah. So where they finally have to do something about it and it's quite painful for both parties, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and and you know, my view is that you, know, you need to use the formal processes that we have in organisations, whether it's performance reviews, whether it's weekly one-on-ones, whether it's coaching sessions, group coaching sessions team meetings, you've got to use those to um, not only do the day-to-day transactions, but actually do something that's transformational. Mm. Transformational for you as a leader and transformational for your for your team, for your employees as well. Because if you don't use those formal activities to be transformational, it just becomes a tick and flick exercise mm. and you might as well not do it. Yes. <laughs> might as well not do it. So Paul, strategy. What are the key activities needed to consistently apply to ensure people are aligned to strategy? Number one, there's a, a saying that a, a, a bloke that I know from Denmark brought to my attention years ago, which was uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right. So number one, <laughs> the first cab off the rank has got to be culture. Because right. if you don't get your culture right, then no matter how much effort you put into strategy, it's never going to work. So I always try and concentrate on the culture first and then the strategy follows afterwards. So let's assume that the culture's right. So the key things from a a strategic perspective that that I like to do, I guess number one is to have a really clear view of what the vision and mission is. And and I know you go into lots of organisations around the place and they have visions and missions and Mm -hmm. they really really are quite meaningless. I like to have a develop with the senior leadership team with key people from the organisation, key influencers from the organisation. I like to develop a, a vision and mission that, that is absolutely ingrained in the organisation, ingrained in the culture. So it actually becomes part of the culture rather than just something that's sitting on your business card or, or behind the receptionist's um, desk in, in the office when you come in. So you have a really clear understanding of what the vision and what the mission is and not, not a long-winded mission and vision that's got lots of typical business speak yes. in it, something that's actually meaningful at it for that organisation. But more importantly, it's got to be meaningful for the customers and or for the stakeholders because, you know, at the end of the day, it's the stakeholders that, and the customers to your organisation that give you the money mm-hmm. to grow. So you need to understand what the vision and mission, what the key competitive advantages that you have and make sure that's built into the vision and mission and, and it's something that customers want to pay for. So you start with that something simple, vision, mission, and the key thing is to make sure you have involvement because if it's just the CEO or the board coming up with a vision and mission and creating edicts around the organisation, this is going to be what it is, then it, it just doesn't become part of the DNA. It becomes an ego trip mm-hmm. for the uh, for the board or the CEO or whoever it is that's doing it. 
So it's a lot easier <laughs> if the CEO just develops the vision and mission sitting in his office and starts sending out emails to the organization. Much easier doing that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work. <laughs> so why do it? Yes. So uh, the key thing for me is to get that involvement, starting off with the vision, vision and mission. And then from that, get involvement to describe what the strategic objectives are. Given that this is our competitive advantage, given this is our vision, this is why customers want to deal with us, what are the strategic objectives that are going to build on our core competencies, that are going to build on our on our competitive advantage so that we can deliver the outcomes that you know, significant stakeholders would want, to, want you to achieve so that if the financial objectives, which a lot of people think financial objectives are actually your strategic objectives, but they're not. They're an outcome of your strategic yes. objectives. And I'm not a, an AFL follower, but Ron Barassi had a fantastic saying that was uh, you just play the game right on the paddock and the scoreboard will look after itself. Mm-hmm. So if you have if you have the right culture, if you've got the right strategy, if everyone understands the vision and mission and you've, you've got very clear views on what the strategic objectives are and the actions that are working towards those objectives and people have had involvement so uh, execution is easier, then the scoreboard's going to look after itself. You're playing the game on the paddock, right? The scoreboard will look after itself. So that should be the focus, not right. the P&L or the balance right. sheet. Looking to learn more about leadership effectiveness? Follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook to see what we do best. I suppose in a large organisation, one of the challenges, and you mentioned the word everyone understands, one of the challenges is how do you get them to understand? Mm-hmm. And how do you not only understand but really buy into it with their hearts and minds, right? So in your experiences with the larger organisations, how has that been done effectively or ineffectively? When I first saw it working really well, it was with a guy called Dick Knowles, and he came out to run some safety workshops with us. And in a team situation, we came up with what's called an Enneagram. So this Enneagram is a, it's a, effectively a communication tool for what the strategy is and what the objectives are. And uh, we had these Enneagrams placed around, around the organisation, and they became a focus of conversation. So whenever you did a toolbox talk or whenever you did a, a, had a management meeting or a team meeting, you'd pull out the Enneagram and start talking about it. And because everyone had input into that, into that Enneagram, everyone had input into the, into the production of that and the conversations that went around it, it made it a really powerful tool to get people to talk about you know, what is the strategy, what are we doing, what's working well, what's not working well, who's engaged, who's not engaged. And so have some kind of symbol to initiate conversations around around the strategy because if you don't initiate conversations, behaviours aren't going to change. People aren't going to understand it. If you don't understand it, you're not going to change. People don't, as soon as you have those conversations happening, everyone can see the, the behaviour that is consistent with what you want to achieve and people see the behaviour that's inconsistent with what you want to achieve. And over time, the behaviours that are consistent get reinforced and, mm-hmm. and get become the norm and the, the behaviours that are inconsistent get reduced, yeah. get attenuated in the organisation so they don't become the predominant norm anymore. So it's so consistent communication. Consistent communication. And again, as I said before, that takes energy, it takes effort, it takes persistence, it takes discipline. You can't just put the strategy down on a piece of paper and email that out to everyone. Yeah. You've actually got to engage the organisation with it. And that, that's, that's um, as I said before, you know, leadership has taken people from one place to another. You can't take people from one place to another unless you're you're talking to them at an emotional level. Talking means listening as well yeah. at an emotional level, and then you can take them from where you currently are to where you want to go. And 
takes discipline to do that. Yes. So it sounds to me in that example there was some sort of above the line and below the line behaviour model. In that particular case with the Enneagram, there was standards and behaviours that were clearly communicated in black and white what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And I think that's a critical thing, that, that you do have to have the acceptable behaviours clearly understood by everyone and they're in black and white. Yeah, for example, at, um, at Concept, we've developed a, a leadership behaviour model which uh, clearly identifies the behaviours that we expect all of the leaders in our at Concept Environmental Services, that all, all of the uh, behaviours that we expect leaders to exhibit. So it becomes part of recruitment, becomes part of performance reviews. We have a leadership share at the start of our weekly meeting. So we're talking about you know, what are the leadership behaviours that have been consistent with our, with our standards and what are the leadership behaviours that have been inconsistent. It becomes conversa- a, a, an agenda item during the one-on-ones that I have with my team. So what are the good leadership attributes around the place that we're seeing? What are the things that we need to improve on? So as soon as you put that energy into that discipline of, of doing that, then behaviours, because behaviours are just a, they're an output of, of the culture mm-hmm. and the culture is an output of leadership. So you can't actually see leadership, but you can see behaviours. Mm-hmm. So if, if the behaviours are consistent with your leadership model, then you know you're heading in the right direction. If they're inconsistent, then yeah, that's something you need to start looking at changing. Fantastic, fantastic. So, Paul, what are the three core leadership traits you think are important to be a great leader? So I think, and I know it's a buzzword, but it's so true, is leading by example. You know, the standard you walk past is the past is a standard you accept. And it's probably overused to a point of becoming a cliche, but it is so critically, it's a critical part of you as a leader. Because you know, you know, we've all seen leaders that they preach something and then go and practice something else. And in my humble opinion, the leaders that do that, they're not acting as leaders. They're, uh, they become, you know, respect just evaporates immediately if they're saying something and doing something else. Their credibility as a leader is gone. And if their credibility as a leader goes, then they're nowhere near as effective as what they could be on term, in terms of impact in the organisation. So I know it's overused, but leading by example is just such a critical thing that all leaders have to exhibit. And number two, in my opinion, is don't accept second best. You know, the first best is the um, the only thing that we should be accepting as as leaders. You know, we've got to set the high, the bar high. You know, and I, I think something that I preach is we don't expect anyone to be absolutely perfect all the time. But all all I expect is that people are improving. People are trying to improve. Organisations are improving. Teams are improving. KPIs are getting better. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's just got to be be getting better. So don't don't accept second best. And whether that's recruiting, whether it's um, excuse mentality. You you and I have had many conversations about excuse mentality. People that come up with excuses, in my opinion, that's a sign of a a very... some person, some innate personal issues with that person, and they need to be improved or eradicated out of the yes. organisation. So don't accept second best. And I think thirdly, holding people accountable. I think there's uh, all too often in organisations it's it's easy to or easier to accept the results that you're getting rather than holding people to account. If they say they're going to achieve something, then make sure that they are given the resources, they're given the time, they're given the ability to achieve those results, and then. Uh, then by holding individuals accountable in the organisation, it becomes part of the culture. So you get a a culture of accountability within an organisation. So I think those are probably the three key things for me as a leader, three attributes of a leader you need to to work on. 
in my experience and your experience, why is it so hard for leaders to hold people accountable? I think, and this is a gross exaggeration probably or gross stereotype, but there's not a lot of really good leaders in, in the world and people that are in leadership positions are oftentimes not really good leaders, but they're in leadership positions. So a lot of leaders, you know, people that are impressionable and people that are being mentored, they're being led and they're being mentored by people that are not, as we talked about before, professional mm-hmm. leaders. And often people that aren't professional leaders don't hold people to account. And if they don't hold people to account, then that becomes the, the norm in the organisation and leaders coming up through that organisation think that that's acceptable and then it becomes their way of behaving. So if they haven't been brought up in a culture of accountability um, and they haven't been mentored to hold people to account, then it's very difficult for Mm. them to do it in the future. So there's not too many, not a lot of leaders that people, a lot of leaders think they're holding people to account, but they do it in a bullying, passive-aggressive style Mm. rather than a constructive leadership style. And uh, my view is that passive-aggressive style is a really poor way of holding people to account. Yeah, I hear you. Thank you. So, Paul, think about your journey in leadership and all the organisations you've been with, leadership failures. What comes to mind and what are your lessons learnt? I think what comes to mind is holding on to poor performance longer than what I should, should have. And I mentioned before that the way to get a, a good, or well, one of the ways to get a good, you've got to recruit the right people to get the good culture, to get a good culture, as well as developing the people that are in the organisation. And I think I've been guilty on a number of occasions of calling out poor performance, but probably spending too much time coaching and mentoring people and trying to uh, to manage performance rather than calling out the poor performance, cutting people loose and recruiting people that are consistent with the organisation and consistent with the culture that we need to get. So you're believing you could turn them around? I believe I want to give people a go. Mm-hmm. Give people a go. And that's a natural Australian key we think to yes. do is to give people a go, see if you can you can help them to uh, to get on the bus. Yeah. But I think there's been you know, a number of occasions where I've probably tried too hard and that's probably created personal anxiety for me because things aren't moving as quickly as what what I wanted. It causes personal anxiety for the employee that's struggling with the new organisation or the direction or the you know what they have to achieve. And often you see people that move out of an organisation, you know, in two or three months' time, they're different people. They knew they weren't performing in their organisation. They're now in an organisation that they can contribute. Their capacity is far more aligned with the role that they are doing and they're far more happier as people. And as a result of them moving, you can bring people into the organisation that are consistent with the culture you want to develop and things happen quicker. And when things are happening quicker, then CEO's blood pressures <laughs> reduces. <laughs> so it's, so there's, there's benefits for the employee and, and also for the organisation by cutting quicker than what we would probably tend to do as a New Zealander or an Australian. Yeah. We tend to try and give people a go and we think, yeah, she'll be right. Yes. We'll, we'll get there. But um, a lot of the time you're better off for both parties to cut sooner rather than later. Right. So... Inwardly, you've probably developed a criteria of how much time and effort you would give someone now as opposed to cutting them loose, right? So what's some of those criterias? A friend of mine said to me once that when you get to a point that you think you need to cut someone loose, 
you've subconsciously been looking at these behaviours for probably six months. Six months, okay. Mm. Yeah. Whether it's right or not, I yes. don't know, but it, it's somewhere more than a couple of weeks. So, yes. so you've been putting up with negative behaviours that you know, subconsciously and probably you haven't totally understood some of these behaviours that you've been putting up with until it reaches to a point where maybe you don't blow a foo-foo valve, but yes. it, gets, it gets to a point where you need to call out the behaviour. So, look, my view, three months of not meeting numbers mm-hmm. is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think um, you can, if you don't meet, meet numbers, whether it's production numbers or sales numbers or gross margin numbers or whatever it is, you know, if there's um, you know, the first month you put in corrective action, you understand what's going on. The second month, if that doesn't happen, then you, uh, you reassess the corrective action that you put in place. After three months, then, in my view, that's, that's performance management territory that you need to uh, determine what the path forward is um, right. for both the organisation and the individual involved. Do you hold fast to that now? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Oh, well done. Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. I think it's, um, again, it's hard to do, mm-hmm. but if that becomes the norm of the organisation, if it becomes part of the culture, then I think it's, um, you know, it's accepted that you've know, got three months of not many numbers and you're going to be in trouble. Right. Mm-hmm. So accountability. Hmm. is one of the, through your failures in leadership, you've developed a system now, a process, inwardly and externally, to hold people even more accountable. Yes. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. um, And again, you've got to be consistent as a leader. You've got to make sure that everyone in the organisation is is, uh, held to account to the same degree and through the same processes. So there's no no favouritism or anything like that. And then it becomes part of the culture. So it's accepted. So you know, the, the organisation becomes self-controlling in a lot of ways. You know, right. People hold each other to account. So in recruiting then, do you actually articulate this to a candidate, a preferred candidate? Yeah, absolutely. Well, number one is to make sure that uh, the candidate has got a track record of achieving results and making sure that, that they have this evidence that they have done what they have said that they're going to do, which is my view is that's accountability. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had some uh, recruitment through SG Partners, which has been fantastic at demonstrating that uh, these individuals that we've recruited have delivered results for organisations. And when I've recruited them into my organisation, then they absolutely have done what they have practised in the past. So it become as part of their nature. Um, so it's it's easier to implement. And so, so you've got to make sure that you've got the right people, you've got the right pool of candidates, you make sure that they understand the uh, the importance of achieving results, how they're going to achieve the, those results, and that's crystal clear before you make the decision to recruit. So, as I said before, you've got to choose your boss as well. Yes. And if there's inconsistencies between the candidate and my expectations as a recruiter, as a recruiting manager, then there's going to be friction from day one. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're much, much better off to... Uh, to be clear about what those expectations are during that recruitment process than, than if it be for it to be a huge surprise to the candidate and also for the recruiting yeah. manager when they start the organisation. So you live by this adage of hire slowly and fire fast then? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, Paul, um, early on in this conversation you talked about it's really important to have great mentors. Part of the challenge, though, is when you're a CEO or a managing director, there's very few people to look upwards to. So how do you get a great mentor or is that something that you struggle with? Um, no, no, I, I don't, don't struggle at all. There's, um, there's people that I would consider 
to be mentors and one would be in this room here. Um, oh, I think you. the uh, I think the conversations that you and I have had over over what's probably ten or eleven, maybe even twelve years now, have very honed my skills as a leadership, particularly around sales leadership and understanding why customers are important. Um, so I think your boss doesn't necessarily have to be your mentor. I think um, I have had some fantastic bosses that have been mentors. You know, Rob Brown from Where would be an absolutely fantastic example of a of a just a one of those leaders that you would crawl over a paddock of broken glass to get to the other side for. Wow. So you know, there are, um, you know, I have had leaders in uh, in organisations that I would consider to be mentors. You know, the the um, um, my first one was Squadron Leader Smith in the New Zealand Air Force, who uh, one of the first lessons he said to me was if if one of your technicians, one of the, one of your aircraft technicians, has a tech charge, which is they do something wrong on an aircraft then the first person that you need to look at is the one looking at you in the mirror. And this was when I was 22, so really impressionable, and that stayed with me all of my life, that if someone in your organisation is doing something wrong, the first place that you need to look at is the person looking at the mirror at you. So that really fantastic advice, but don't be restricted to people in your organisation. You know, you know, you're a fantastic example of someone who I would consider to be a mentor outside the organisation that I work for. So um, you know, seek out those people. Yeah, fantastic advice. Again, that self-awareness piece comes in, right, looking at the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> Having yeah. the courage to look at the mirror and then the vulnerability to actually look at the image and, and everything that goes with it and say, hey, this is what I need to change. Yep, yep. Fantastic. Yep. So speaking of which, if you went back to any leadership role, so from what you know now, what advice would you give yourself, your younger self? I think the key thing would be, don't be too humble and pushing back upwards to, right. to your boss. So I think uh, there's a lot of times in, that I've looked back and realised that you know, the, the direction that uh, that I'd been getting from a leader was negatively impacting on the organisation and not uh, taking us in the direction that we've all agreed that we're going. So as a result of that, that causes... You know, some discontinuity in terms of the direction the organisation is going. And if you have people going in different directions in an organisation, then there's no way, no way you're going to get to where you want to go. So I think probably what I'd, I'd say to myself is is make sure that I, I would be more assertive in challenging direction that's coming from, from a board or from a chairman of a board because they're not always right. And uh, my first 10 years was in, in the military and uh, you were in a um, – it was – considered to be well in fact it was illegal <laughs> you don't you don't challenge yeah. challenge a lawful command so i think probably my early mm. commercial career i probably uh, took that um that culture that i've been immersed in for 10 years probably into the into the commercial world yeah. when i should have probably pushed back and challenged challenged superiors more than what i did because we would have had much better outcome for the organization if, if we had a Challenged, and, and number two, you know, your boss has got to listen as well. well you got to have <laughs> that safe environment. You got to have that safe environment. Absolutely, yes. you got to have that safe environment yes. to be able to do that. So you don't feel as though, you know, if I challenge challenge my boss, I'm going to be out on the street the next yes. day. You've you've got to be able to challenge your boss, and you've got to be able to challenge the decisions that are coming out of uh, out of senior management or out of the board. Because at the end of the day, if you get it wrong, then it can be catastrophic for organisations. So I think the, the key lesson looking back on my career is is don't be too hesitant in challenging what your boss is saying or the direction that you're getting from boards or or the uh, strategic direction. You know, 
a lot of organisations I work for, the strategy has been very much a top-down process. So you haven't had people involved in the development of that strategy. So there's no ownership, so it's, it's more difficult to, uh, to get executed. And a lot of the time, it's the wrong thing to do. And a lot of the time, it's the wrong thing to do. You know, there, there was um, you know, when you're working for multinational corporations, there have been times where even though you're meeting, you're meeting budget, you're meeting cash, you're meeting your, your forecasts, a directive comes out of the head office to cut ten percent of your employees, yeah. and uh, that quite clearly, if the organ- if your part of the organisation is meeting your budget, that's not the right thing to, to do. So there's been occasions where I, th- I probably should push back and say, no, this is not the right this is not the right thing that we should be doing for this particular part of the organisation. And you didn't push back because you didn't feel safe to do so. I probably would have felt safe, but probably wouldn't have been listened to. Right. So, oh, right. so it's a key lesson for leaders is make sure you listen. Yes. And listen properly, listen actively, rather than just pretending that you're listening and, and reflecting back. Actually, you know, use the information you're getting from your employees to change your mind. Don't hesitate to change your mind. It's not a sign of weakness to revoke a decision you've made in the past. Um, thinking of what you're sharing there, I, I saw Patrick Lepsioni uh, last year and one of the things he was talking about is CEOs and MDs and leaders hate meetings. They hate having meetings because they don't feel that the outcome is there. And he said one of the challenges is that great meetings are meetings that have conflict, yeah. <laughs> that, that people actually share why they disagree yeah. to the point where at the end of the meeting everyone has voiced their disagreement but we all know now that everyone is on board in principle with the outcome that's been decided upon yep. rather than go out and start white-anting. White-anting, yeah. Right? yeah. Yep. So what do you do as a leader in your meetings to create an atmosphere where there can be dissent, there can be conflict, there can be people that are willing to talk differently to your, to your ideas? The key thing is to make sure that you've got an environment where people can talk. So that, that means you as a leader – you don't dominate the discussion. You know, it's not your job to, to dominate discussions in, in every meeting. And there are times when you have to, when you're in a crisis situation and you need to get things done, you know, you could be the dominant person. But 90% of all meetings or team meetings or toolbox talks or whatever, you should be present, you should be participating, but you shouldn't be dominating the discussion because there are people in organisations that are sick of fans and uh, won't say anything that's contrary to what the leader's saying. In fact, they'll reinforce it. And if, if you get sycophants that are reinforcing you all the time, then you think you're doing the right thing. Mm. That's not necessarily the right thing for the organisation. So you've got to, you know, my view is you need to participate in discussions but not dominate discussions. You need to ask questions. You question, and I think I've learned this from you, Michael, that uh, the question is um, asking the right questions is a very powerful thing to do in communication. So asking those right questions in meetings to individuals who uh, may not be participating in, in the discussion is a really valid thing to do, a really important thing to do. And again, it comes back down to that culture thing. If you have got a safe culture that people can talk up and are willing to talk up and are willing to share and are willing to say why they disagree with something, then that makes a very, very powerful organisation. And it, it actually enhances you as a leader. You know, you, this vision of of leaders of being you know, John Wayne style leader where they come and ride into a town and they fire out a whole bunch of orders and everything's great. That vision of leaders is, in my opinion, gone. It's um, you've got to be uh, you've got to be able to listen. You've got to be able to change your mind. You've got to be able to participate in discussions and not not necessarily dominate or lead discussions. And uh, I think over time, if you if you do have that 
more of a not a, a passive approach but you know, less domineering approach then uh, over time everyone will start to feel safe that they can participate and you know if you, if people see that they're having a contrary view to what the leader is saying in, in a particular setting and that person isn't disciplined or isn't shut down or is listened isn't isn't listened to then that's going to create more and more of that behavior so it's a behavior that you want to reinforce yeah certainly so, Paul, when I, when I looked at your LinkedIn profile, there's, there's a few people you follow. So, what's a great? If you had to choose a great leader in the world, in the past or the present, who would that be? Choose a great leader. I think there's aspects of great leaders and lots of different people. It's difficult to see all the traits that I uh, I really like in one person. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, I really like. The engagement that Winston Churchill executed in the Second World War, um, you know, getting getting people to focus on what the important thing was, and that was to keep the Germans on the other side of the, the sea. You know, that, that was a really powerful message. You know, it was obviously there was a burning platform there, yes. but just getting everyone everyone in Britain and you know, the, the the Allies had to focus on what the key thing was. That's an important lesson from Winston Churchill. He had lots of other flaws, yes. but really good at, at communicating a message and getting people focused on on achieving what the right goal was. So I think that's a really good part of a leader that I admire. I think it's been difficult over the last few years to find political leaders in our part of the world who you could draw any positive positive mentoring or coaching from. Inspiration. Uh, but, <laughs> inspiration from. But uh, John Key over in New Zealand was one of them. It was probably yes. like that. He, you know, he, uh, he wasn't a politician. He hadn't been a unionist or he hadn't been a lawyer. You know, he had worked in business and all of a sudden he ended up running New Zealand um, and did a really good job, really engaging guy, really, uh, really nice bloke, really people-focused, um, a really good communicator. So there's some lessons you can get from people like him. And if you look in, in the business side of things, you know, I think people like you know, Elon Musk, who, you know, they've got a very, very clear vision and mission about what they want to achieve and, you know, bringing electric cars into the world to reduce carbon emissions. You know, I think what a, you know, the way that he's created that organisation from absolutely nothing, the innovation he's brought into the organisation and the benefit that he's going to bring into the world mm-hmm. as a result of the, uh, the technology that he's bringing in is pretty amazing. You know, equally, there were some things that Jack Welsh brought into uh, into GE. You know, I see he died unfortunately on on Monday. I think it was yes. or Sunday. Yeah. Sunday, I think he died. But you know, he, there's a lot of lessons that you can learn from some of the things that he did in GE. There's a lot of things that you can probably learn from him about what not to do as well, because yes. uh, he was very much a, a numbers sort of a guy. You know, he was a chemical engineer from memory, and he probably he was good on the accountability side of it, but probably didn't have people focus that he should have mm-hmm. in the organisation. So, you know, there's lessons that you can learn yes. from guys like um, Jack Welch. You know, people like Andrew McKenzie from BHP. A huge transformation he's taken the organisation from a, a mining organisation to using a manufacturing model in mining. And uh, as a result of that, there's been so much efficiency that's been brought into BHP as a result of taking a model that's completely you know, non-aligned to mining and bring in the BHP and, and, you know, that takes leadership, it takes creating the right culture, it creates, uh, it means uh, you've got to create the right strategy, you've got to have involvement in that strategy. What does manufacturing mean in mining? You know, how do you, how do you create a lean mining organisation? So you know, I think the transformation that Andrew McKenzie's brought to BHP has been, been significant and, you know, I think there's lots of lessons that, that other organisations that, that may not be in manufacturing, but you can take from that manufacturing, from that Toyota production system style of organisation and 
just eliminate waste, get rid of the things that customers don't want to pay for. Mm-hmm. To do transformation, though, Paul, you have to be there for a certain period of time mm. to get that journey yep. started and then to see the sustainability of that. Yep. I think part of the challenges in, in business world, you know, you mentioned BHP or others, is they have this, and politicians, they have this three-year model. Yeah, yeah. So they don't get enough time to actually embed that transformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that's, that's a very valid point. You know, I think you really need to have a, a long-term vision you know, break it up into smaller bite-sized chunks and immaculately execute those chunks of work. Execute is something I haven't mentioned too much today, is that it's relatively easy coming up with a strategic plan. The challenge is to execute it and execute it flawlessly because uh, it's the flawless execution of plans and activities that change an organisation. It's not the planning itself. Yes. So um, so execution is a key, key part of making sure things happen. So let's talk about your current gig concept, right? Yep. So tell us where you're at with that journey. Yeah, so uh, Concept Environmental Services, uh, it's a fantastic company that's got um, some unique patented technology that's, um, that's used for storing and processing um, effluent in, um, in coal seam gas. It's um, been going for around 10 years. So if you look at the, the strategy of Concept is that uh, they identified a, a niche. or that, that, Number one, they had a fantastic offer. They had a patented, unique product. They had some, some great technical competitive advantages that create value for the customer. There was a, a very clear niche in coal seam gas that was identified. That niche was exploited. Now we're taking that storage and processing capability and taking that into some other other applications. So that we, we, other applications where we can be very clear and, and understand what the competitive advantages that we bring to those applications, make sure that we understand what that that niche is and make sure that we adapt the offer to these new unique niches and exploit these new niches. And at the end of the day, you know, everything that we do is about reducing the impact on the environment. And we're taking waste streams from, you know, everything from coal seam gas to chicken factories to mining and reducing the impact on the environment. You know, one of one of the applications we've got is that we've got nickel-rich uh, liquor coming out of a, a nickel plant and in the past that was going into a tailings dam. Now it's not going into the tailings dam, it's getting reprocessed through the factory. So it's a, it's a unique technology that um, we're reducing the environmental burden in lots of different areas. Fantastic. And the growth is going really well? Growth is going really well. You know, this year our, our revenue will be, will be more than double what it was last wow. year. We've got the right team on board, um, thanks to some help from people in this organisation in in SG Partners. So we've uh, got the right people in the organisation. We're developing the right culture. Uh, We're developing accountability. We're very focused on what we need to achieve. Everyone in the organisation has been involved in developing the mission and vision, been very clear on what that vision and mission is, and we're heading in the right direction. Well done, Paul. Well, thank you very much for being our great guest today. Appreciate it. You have been listening to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, a show which shares insights, experiences, and lessons learned by an incredible lineup of real business leaders. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review or share the show with a friend. To get the show notes from today's episode, go to sgpartners.com.au forward slash podcast. Don't want to miss a single episode? Sign up to be notified when the next one drops. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.